Come take comfort and be challenged as we learn from the most popular book in the world, the Psalms. You're tuned to the Church Next Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Church Next Podcast. My name is Chris Yaw, and I'm your host as we learn from gifted presenters on a variety of topics which are designed to help us grow in our spiritual lives. You're listening to episode number 21. It's called Introducing the Psalms with Isaac Everett. Isaac is a musician, he's an author, he's a popular speaker. And our podcasts are curated from our online learning library. It's over at churchnext.tv. You can find out more by going there. And if you'd like to support us, consider a $9 monthly subscription. It'll give you access to all of our individual online classes. Your generosity helps us produce digital experiences that help shape disciples. Recognize any of these lines? I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now we might have heard these words being uttered by our parents or grandparents, or heard them recited at church. We might or might not have attributed them to the Psalms, but they are words that we have consciously or subconsciously come to live by. This is the power of the Psalms, words written to God in prayer, Praise, thanksgiving, elation, despair, frustration, anger, and fear. Words that were written a very, very long time ago, but which still speak to our common human concerns and experiences. As one writer puts it, we were born with this book in our very bones. In old traditions, the Psalms were formally taught and learned and referenced as guideposts in daily living. Even young children were taught the Psalms as part of their early development. The rule of St. Benedict mandated that the entire book of Psalms be read weekly. Jesus, our Savior, spoke from the book of Psalms, which he would have learned as a child. Throughout his ministry and during the agonizing period on the cross, we hear those words. We can only then do like Jesus. The Psalms speak to us personally and communally. They were initially codified into book form for use as a hymnal in the period of the Second Temple and are used weekly in our worship services where they are mainly sung. Many Psalms have been popularized through music, both within and outside the worship setting. Maybe you've heard songs like Sing to the Lord a New Song, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, or By the Rivers of Babylon, and so many more. We're taken through this delightful introduction to the book of Psalms by a man named Isaac Everett. And he begins by talking about the origins of the Psalms. Do you know any of the myths or any of the misinformation about the book of Psalms? For example, that King David was its sole author. Well, in this first talk, we are introduced to the variety and texture and depth of this book by looking at its origin. We'll look at its usage. We'll look at its worldwide history and hear that Jesus quoted its words as we know he did and as we still do. The easiest way to understand the history of the book of Psalms, also called the Psalter, is to think of it as a hymnal. You know, if you pick up a copy of the hymnal 1982, which is the normative hymnal in the Episcopal Church. You look right there in the cover, it says 1982, but you wouldn't think that every song written in that book was written in the 80s. That book contains 
songs from a thousand years ago, from hundreds of years ago, from the 19th century, songs that were written shortly before the hymnal was published. It encompasses centuries and centuries of Christian music all within a single book. And the Psalms are almost the exact same. The, uh, the Psalter, as we currently have it, is actually a fairly late document by Old Testament standards. It probably comes from the Greek period around 150 BC or so. But that said, with contained within it, some of those texts are extremely old. The oldest is probably Psalm 29, and we know that because the, the Hebrew in there is archaic. Um, there's a lot of repetition of phrases. There's a, the imagery used for God is um, of God as sort of this storm deity. It's a very Canaanite kind of hymn. And then fast forward a little bit, we've got the Royal David Psalms that are very clearly about a united monarchy in Israel, and that was about 1,000 BC or so. Um, we have psalms from the Babylonian exile, psalms that recall the, um, the story of Moses and contrast that with the people of Israel being pulled out of their homeland and taken into captivity in Babylon, which is in the 6th century BC. We have psalms about the rededication of the temple, like Psalm 30, that is a very late period. So this is, the book of Psalms is just a record of centuries and centuries and centuries of Jewish thought and Jewish prayers. So eventually, at a very late date, someone came along and compiled them all into this thing that we call the Book of Psalms, put them in a very specific order, arranged them in five books that kind of loosely uh, correspond with the five books of Moses, and gave them headings, gave each psalm a title, uh, or at least a little annotation. You might say, this psalm is of David, or this psalm is of Moses, or this psalm was very specifically written by David after being confronted by Nathan the prophet over his affair with Bathsheba things like that. So these psalms were compiled for a very particular reason. They were they started off as poems um, or pieces of folk music, pieces of uh, poetry written by royal scribes, but eventually they were put together as basically a hymnal for the Second Temple period to be sung by community, in community, uh, in worship. And we know that they were sung over and over and over again. The Mishnah tells us this. They were sung in the temple. The Septuagint backs that up. Um, the New Testament quotes 60 psalms. I think it's 93 citations in the New Testament and particularly represents people quoting them from memory. Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Into your hands I commend my spirit. Peter and Paul being called to defend their faith and them themselves calling on the book of Psalms because those are the words that came to mind. So you can imagine that way back when the book of Psalms was first put together, it was very similar to how we have the Bible, but then we also have a hymnal. They had the Torah and they had the Psalms. So this was the, the musical and cultural prayerful DNA of the early faith traditions that the, the people who founded Christianity had written on the tablet of their heart. Fast forward a little bit, we know from Athanasius and Tertullian and the Apostolic Constitutions that chanting of psalms was very, very present in early Christian liturgy. Um, in Paul's letter to the Church at Corinth, he says, you know, when you come together, every single person brings a hymn or a psalm, and the word there is psalmos. And you'll notice that we keep hearing each of these people talking about psalms being sung or chanted. The word psalm itself is a Greek word that means essentially um, music from plucking a stringed instrument, like a guitar or a lyre. That's what psalm means. And tehillim, which is the Hebrew word for psalm, is very similar. It literally means praises, but is often used in musical contexts. 
So these songs that were sung in the early temple period, in the early church, monasticism gets invented, the Egyptian Desert Fathers, and Benedict comes along, and Benedict forms the, the rule of St. Benedict, which says you need to be praying the Psalms, all 150 of them, every single week, have to get through the whole book, cover to cover, every seven days. And in the medieval period, as monasticism becomes more and more highly regarded as the model for all Christian vocation, all secular clergy, all priests need to start praying the Psalms in the same way, keeping the daily office. The reformers come along in the Renaissance, and they throw out a whole lot of liturgical tradition, but they keep the Psalms. In fact, John Calvin um, says very, very specifically, the only kind of singing that should be allowed in worship is psalm singing because it's the only kind of psalm, it's the only kind of singing that is biblically mandated. So he writes, he puts the psalms into the vernacular, he metricizes them, he makes them the people's music, and this continues. The first book ever published in America was the Bay Psalm book. That was the first thing that people put on paper when they got here. So the important thing to realize about the Book of Psalms is that from thousands of years ago up until very recently, they were the music of our faith. They were the things that people sung in church, by themselves, in personal devotions. And eventually they started to get it supplanted by things like Lutheran hymns and Wesleyan hymns and shape note singing and gospel music. But they're still sung. It's still the only piece of scripture that we hear every single week in the lectionary, and that's why. Every book has a theme, sometimes more than one. So, too, the book of Psalms. The themes in the Psalms deal with human issues. Praise, gratitude to God, cries for deliverance from pain and suffering, requests for support and grace, and remain as real then as they are now. The knowledge of these themes helps us to wrap our arms around this book of 150 poems, songs, and prayers. There's a lot of themes in the book of Psalms, in the Psalter, and that's because the Psalms are one of the most human books of the Bible. They're prayers. So they're scripture in that they're God speaking to us, they're God speaking to humanity, but they're also prayers in that it's humanity speaking to God. It's a two-way communication contained in this text. So because of that human origin of these poems, they are flawed, and they are pained, and they are real, and they are gripping, and you'll, you'll find in them expressions of great joy, great comfort, um, great loneliness, great sorrow, agony, um, trepidation over growing old and fear of being forgotten, um, wedding psalms, um, psalms about being uh, sick and yearning for healing, uh, psalms praying for an end to malicious gossip. This sort of, it's like reading someone's diary in a lot of ways, if when you read it cover to cover. So within that, there are five major kinds of psalms and a couple minor kinds of psalms, but the main kinds of psalms are psalms of praise, psalms that just go on and on about how awesome God is. Some of them picture God as king, and they're a little bit subversive um, in that God is king rather than a human being king. Um, psalms, particularly southern psalms uh, of Zion and praising the glory of God's holy mountain. Psalms of lament, there's two kinds of psalms of lament. There's communal laments, which is the entire community gathering together to to pray over something awful that has happened to them, such as a, a famine or a plague or being carted off to Babylon. Um, and there's individual laments, which is where you find the things about malicious gossip and personal illness and growing old, etc. 
You've got royal psalms, which are probably commissioned by the monarchy and royal, written by royal scribes. In fact, the only psalm that's about romance is about a, a royal wedding, which is why it kind of doesn't work for me, I think. Um, and you've got psalms of thanksgiving, which is exactly what it sounds. It's psalms of thank you, God, for this, thank you, God, for that. These themes, uh, they form very specific genres, and the meter of the psalms changes. You'll see uh, psalms of praise are very, in the original Hebrew, um, they're very symmetrical. They kind of like march along like a, like a marching band. Um, psalms of lament are very asymmetrical, so each second line is left hanging in the air of, of being unfulfilled. And then there's also something called Torah psalms, psalms of teaching, um, the first psalm in the entire uh, Psalter is one of these, and psalms of, for teaching language, a lot of the psalms are acrostic poems that start with the first letter of the alphabet, and then go on to the next letter of the alphabet, and then the next letter of the alphabet, and you kind of read them, and you look at them, and realize that they're Sunday school lessons, they're helping little children learn not only their alphabet, but learn the basic things of what it means to be a people in covenant with God. So, Psalms of praise, psalms of communal lament and individual lament, royal psalms, thanksgiving psalms, Torah psalms. But within a larger context, to sort of zoom out a little bit, if you remember, these psalms are then later put into a particular order and compiled into a book by an editor. And so there's also a theme to the entire Psalter as a whole. And it starts off with, you know, blessed are they who um, exult in the Word of God and who study the Word of God. That's first psalm. It's the intro to the entire book. It sets you up. If you study this book, you will be happy, you will be blessed. Goes in to introduce the character of David and the character of, of, of royalty. Goes further to talk about all the crazy things that God has done for and to Israel over the years. Finally sinks into this sort of very dark place of, of lament after lament after lament before finally at the very end accelerating and the psalms become shorter and shorter and happier and happier and there's this sort of as the Psalter reaches its climax at the very end there's an eschatological component to it where you're seeing people are already proclaiming the imminent deliverance from all those psalms of lamentation that came before it and the book ends on that note um, of, of God being the great deliverer find the last psalm, Psalm 150, ends with just over and over hitting it like a machine gun. Praise God with this. Praise God with that. Praise God in this way. Praise God in that way. Everything that is breath, praise the Lord. And commentators will say that, that me the, the book of Psalms ends with a comma rather than with a period. That the idea is as the psalms slowly accelerate to this um, eschatological ecstasy that it's saying, and continue on. Psalm 150 isn't the last psalm, it's just the last psalm that we have written down, that these songs need to be continuing in our own communities as we celebrate the imminent arrival of God. Do you have a favorite psalm? Well, a lot of us do. And this next talk by Isaac may be particularly insightful as he talks about some of our favorite psalms, especially those that are helpful in times of need. So when talking about favorite psalms, there are the psalms that are most famous and that you're most likely to encounter, and then there are psalms that are my personal favorites. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about both. 
Some of the most famous psalms include the 22nd Psalm, which is a very extended psalm of lamentation. It's the one that Jesus quotes on the cross with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's interesting in that the traditional structure of a psalm of lament goes invocation of God, followed by uh, complaining about what's going on in your life, followed by petitioning God to do something about it, followed by an expression of confidence that God will do something about it, and then praising God at the very end and promising to continue praising. In the 22nd Psalm, the psalmist goes from complaining to petitioning, and then goes back to complaining and petitioning some more. He really sinks around into it before finally at the very end uh, cheering up. And you'll hear this a lot during Lent. It comes up over and over again. And of course, the one that follows it is Psalm 23. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Probably the most famous psalm of all of them. The interesting thing about Psalm 23 is that it's actually written in the metrical style of the lamentation, in that asymmetric, incomplete feeling that is the exact same as Psalm 22. And if you read it closely, it follows that same kind of structure, except everything is turned on its head. So instead of complaining, you're expressing um, all the things that God is doing well for you. And instead of petitioning God, you're thanking God. So it's, it's in terms of genre, it's a psalm of lamentation, but no one would ever mistake it for that. It's a psalm of confidence in God's goodness. And that's uh, it's one of the reasons that I love it so much is because you get a really clear insight into the artistic process and that sort of subversion of genre that the poet does in there. It's, I love it. Psalm 51 is also very famous. Open my lips and my mouth will proclaim your praise. Create in me a clean heart, O God, or new a right spirit within me. It's a psalm of penitence, and it's ascribed to David. Obviously, we don't know if David actually wrote it, but it's the most commonly used hymn in the Orthodox Church, and it's used often in morning prayer. It's used in uh, also in Lent and penitential seasons. It's a good one to know. Psalm 103 is kind of the archetypical psalm of praise. Uh, it's been done in Godspell, for example. Uh, if you want to just a basic, what does a psalm of praise look like? You know, bless the Lord, my soul. That's where that comes from. And Psalm 137, how can we sing songs of Zion in a foreign land? Um, most famously done by the Melodians, the reggae group. So those are the ones that, you're, that if you're going to know five psalms, you should know those, absolutely, because those are the ones you're going to hear quoted on TV shows and, and hear in church most often and hear in music. That said, there's a couple ones that are my personal favorites. Um, I really, really love Psalm 1, which is just a basic introduction to the book of Psalms. Happy are you who sit with these and pray with these and take joy in the teaching of God. It's a great one to start off the entire book with. I'm also a huge fan of Psalm 13. How long, oh God, how long? It's very short. It's six verses long, but it's it perfectly captures what a psalm of, lament, of lamentation looks like. It, it perfectly captures uh, prayers of sadness, and it's the sort of thing, if you can commit it to memory, you find over and over and over times, and that is the perfect prayer that you want to pray, where you have four verses of, of crying out to God and, frankly, accusing God of not holding up God's end of the bargain before finally coming back to but I do trust in you, and I do know that you are good. It's just a, it's, it's perfect. Psalm 117 is another one of my favorites. Psalm 117 is a, another great one to commit to memory because it's the shortest psalm in the Bible. And when you read it in English, it's, um, it kind of feels a little generic, actually. It's a little vanilla. 
but when you read it in the Hebrew, you realize that there's a lot of theological density in there. Um, it's very short. Ki gavar alenu, for greatly on us, like on us, like a cup resting on a table or garments on your skin, is the love of God. It is on you as closely as something can be on you. Ve'emet Adonai, the truth of God, le'olam, is to eternity off to the farthest horizon, for as far as the human eye can see and a little bit further. And that distinction of God's love being so intimate and so knowable and God's truth being so unknowable, that's as much theology as I need in, two, in a two-verse chapter of the Bible. So that's Psalm 117. And my last one is Psalm 150 that I talked about a little bit before. Praise God in the sanctuary, praise God in the firmament, praise God with horns and timbrels and dance and pipes and cymbals and clanging cymbals. Uh, I just love it for its completely um, unself-conscious exuberance, uh, that the, the, the ecstatic expression of joy in praising God, and particularly that it's all in the imperative, that it's saying it's not just a conclusion to the book of Psalms, it's an invitation to living a life of joy. We often sing the Psalms at church, and we're told in this next talk that the very best way to read the Psalms is to sing them. As anything set to music settles deeper in our hearts where the Psalms should be. But whatever way they're read, the moral of this next talk is to just do it. So there's a couple ways to read the Psalms. And personally, because the Psalms are so musical in character, so metrical and rhythmic in their writing, and because they've been used musically for so long, I think the best way to read Psalms is to actually sing them. They're much more than just a book for personal devotions, although they're good for that. They're also songs. It's also music. But that said, let's first talk about how to read them, then we'll talk about how to sing them. It's the only book in the Bible that's used every single week in the lectionary. We hear it every week in church, usually as a gradual between the Hebrew Bible reading and the epistle reading. So if you're just looking for an easy way to get into it, just take your church bulletin home with you and read the psalm for that week throughout the week so that when you come next week, you have something new to pray with, something new to meditate with. The advantage is that you have someone telling you what to read and when. You don't have to put a whole lot of thought into it. The disadvantage is that the lectionary only uses about two-thirds of the psalms. Uh, a full 49, 50 of the psalms are just considered too, uh, too raw to really be used in, in communal worship. And if you only follow the lectionary, you'll never get to read some of the really crazy, gritty, dark stuff that is contained in this book. So another way to do it, if you open a copy of the Book of Common Prayer, um, the entire Psalter is written in the Book of Common Prayer, and they're arranged in 30 discrete segments. So it'll say, day one morning prayer, day one evening prayer, day two morning prayer, day two evening prayer, and you can read the entire Book of Psalms that way over the course of a month, on, you know, averaging about five psalms a day, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually fine. And the advantage of doing that is that you're going through the book in order, and so you're fully getting that larger narrative arc that the editor of the Book of Psalms, whoever he or she was, put in there very intentionally. The disadvantage is that it doesn't actually follow the rhythm of the liturgical year, if that's something that you care about. If it is, another way to read them is with the Daily Office, which is also in the prayer book. And that has the disadvantage that it skips around the Psalter, so you're reading Psalm 29, 
and then Psalm 117, and then you're reading Psalm 150, and then whatever. But it chooses psalms that go along with the other readings in the daily office and that match, you know, Lent and Epiphany and Advent and Easter, and so it ties in with the larger um, spirituality of the liturgical year. One of the things I do every year is during Advent, I start at the beginning of the book of Psalms and I follow it through that 30-day cycle and ending usually around the third or fourth day of Christmas. And just to make sure that I keep those Psalms in my head, I, I highly recommend that you do that. So all that said, I think that singing the Psalms is much more interesting and much more useful, not only because I love music and I love singing, but also because when you set something to music, when you sing it to a melody, it really helps lock it into your mind. There's a, It's easier to remember things that you've sung. I remember, and I was living in New York City when 9-11 happened, and I remember walking around the streets and hearing people singing, I want Jesus to walk with me, or Osei Shalom, or all these different songs and hymns that really meant something to them. I didn't hear anybody quoting their favorite sermon that they'd ever heard. It's the music of our tradition that really gives us the tools that we need to live our lives, and it's the music that we remember. It's the music that sort of bubbles up in our mind when we're searching for words because we don't have words ourselves. So I really encourage you to sing psalms. There's a couple ways to do it. You can always just chant in monotone with a shooty box or a prayer bowl or something like it. Um, you can chant them Gregorian chant style if you're old adventurous, or if you want to be really adventurous, an Anglican chant, which is like Gregorian chant, but it's in four parts, you need a group to do it. Those things are a little technical, though, and they can require you to spend as much brain power on how to sing what you're singing as you are into actually praying the words that you're singing. So my favorite way to sing is actually with an antiphon. This is a very, very ancient way of doing it. It comes from the Mishnah, where you take one, where you take one line from the psalm and you sing it to a simple melody in response to someone reading the psalm to you or perhaps chanting it to you. And that's a great way to do it because you can learn the antiphon in 15 seconds and then spend the rest of your time really praying the words. But also it's musical enough that it will get rooted in your head and it will be there for you when you need it. There are many resources for singing psalms. There's, um, there's a psalter that focuses on hymn tune settings so that you can sing the psalms metricized, you know, in a rhythm to tunes that you probably already know. There's no shortage of Psalters that have antiphons already published for them. In fact, the Lutheran hymnal and the UCC hymnal both have complete Psalters in them with antiphons. And there's my personal favorite, the Emergent Psalter that I wrote myself, that has uh, antiphons for all 150 psalms that can be done in any instrumentation you might want to do. So I encourage you to read the psalms. I encourage you to use them. I encourage you to connect with them. I encourage you to pray them. I encourage you to commit them to memory as much as you can, knowing that these are the songs that have been sung to God by God's people for centuries and centuries and centuries. Before we leave you, a couple of suggestions for further learning. If you want to scoot over to churchnext.tv, we have some online courses that we've linked together into something we call a track. And this particular track is called Exploring the Bible. It begins with a course by a man named Merrick Zabriskie called Introduction to the Bible. It also includes a course called Introducing the Gospels with Michael Card and another called Introduction to Revelation with Wayne Whitney. And that's our podcast for the day. Thanks so much for tuning in. And again, if you want to know more about us, you can pop over to churchnext.tv. 
And may the blessing of Almighty God be upon you and be with you this day and always. Amen.